Amen and amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to 1 Kings chapter 18. With the Word of God open before you, let's pray. O Lord, our God and our Father in heaven, we come before You this evening to pray for Your blessing to rest and to abide upon us. We pray that You will send forth Your Holy Spirit, O Lord, to draw our hearts near to You, to strengthen us, O God, by this glorious story of of the revelation of Your mighty power showing forth Baal, and by implication all false deities up for what they really are. Will God draw near? Will God bless us and be gracious to us? For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's pick up the reading in verse 17. This is the Word of God. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal, and the four hundred prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the, on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, that's well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. 
and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He said to them, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no, not one of them escaped. escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink. For there's a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the mount, top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. At the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, to, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, 
And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, reality is important. Nobody wants to be sold a counterfeit as the real deal. The story goes about this Irishman who bought his girlfriend a diamond ring for their engagement. It was a real rock. And she said, Coo, is it, is it a real diamond? He said, well, if it's not now, I've just been done out of $4.50. You ought to have known, of course, at the price of it, that it was no real diamond. But sometimes people are easily taken in, especially when they want to be. And the people of Israel have been taken in now for many years by this counterfeit uh, God, the God of the storm, Beal. Well, as they say, things are fixing to get real. It's time for Israel to wake up and to wise up and to realize who the real God really is. And it's not Beal, and it's not Ahab, and it's not Jezebel, and it's definitely not them and their preference, whatever kind of God they want to worship. The fact is, of course, the real God is Yahweh. And as Ben Shapiro likes to say, facts don't care about your feelings, especially if you're one of the prophets of Baal, as we'll find out at the end of our passage. Now, Elijah in this story clearly has an agenda. He wants to humiliate Baal once and for all. He wants to, he wants to do it at the headquarters of Baalism, which is Mount Carmel. He wants to expose Baal as a fraud, and he wants to do it publicly, categorically, absolutely, undeniably. He wants to do it before the eyes of the whole nation. The second thing is he wants God to turn the hearts of Israel back to Himself. Interestingly, Israel have not the power to do that, even the evidence of who is the real God. They have not the power. God must turn their hearts back, as we'll see at the end of the passage. And then thirdly, I think he also wants to heal the rift that currently divides Israel from their brothers in the south, the kingdom of Judah. And I think that because when he builds the altar, he uses the twelve stones, signifying the twelve tribes of Israel. And not ten and two, but twelve all together. And Elijah's showing them here. There's an object lesson in that, that there is one God and there should be one nation, just like in the New Testament, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And overall, in Ephesians 4, you remember, and the importance of, of unity. Well, as we look at this passage, we learn a number of things about the real God. And the first is, the real God doesn't care about odds. Elijah stands alone against the combined power the combined might of Jezebel's idolatrous regime, 850 pagan prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And we're reminded here that orthodoxy is never a popularity contest. 
God's kingdom isn't a democracy. And the whole of the Bible teaches that. Jesus says, you remember, narrow is the road that leads to life, and few there are who find it. And broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many there are who go in by it. If you want to follow God, and if you want to get to heaven, you better brace yourself, young people especially, but also older people, you better brace yourself to stand in the minority. And the Bible is replete with messages of that. Here, of course, one Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal, but you could also think of Gideon's army versus the Midianites. Remember how Gideon started with 32,000? And God, um, and even then, they stood against the Midianites who were as many as the locusts covering the earth as far as the eye could see. And yet God said, the odds are still too much in your favor. If you, have, if you win the battle with that, you'll, you might think too much of yourself. And so God instructs Gideon to reduce his numbers, first down to 10,000, and finally down to just 300, so that it would be clear that when victory came, it was a victory that belonged to God alone. Or you might think of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel um, set up by his adversaries uh, who tricked the king into issuing the decree that landed Dian, Daniel all by himself in the lion's den, or when his three friends got thrown, he and his three friends thrown into the furnace. It was the minority against the major, majority. Or you might think of the time um, when Hezekiah was king over Judah and Sennacherib, you remember, invaded Israel, the king of Assyria, and encamps against the fortified cities and then against Jerusalem, and it's terrifying, and the people are panicking and, uh, frankly, stressing out. And Hezekiah stands up, you remember, and says, "'Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him.'" With him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God who will help us and fight our battles. Or you might think of Psalm 1. When you read through Psalm 1, we noticed this before when we preached this psalm some years ago, but as you look at Psalm 1, the righteous man is always spoken of in the singular, and the wicked are in the plural. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked ones, nor stands in the way of sinners, plural, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On His law He meditates day and night. But the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away, and so forth. It's only when you get to the congregation of the righteous in glory that the righteous are spoken of in plural in the Psalm 1. Now, I know many commentators, I think, rightly point out the singularity of the man points forward to Jesus. It's almost as if only one man will ever be righteous in that way and to that extent, and that is true. But I think it also teaches us that if you want, that when you live in this world, you can expect the counsel of the wicked to be much more prevalent. And at times when you follow God, at school, at college, in the workplace, it'll feel as if you're standing all by yourself, and don't panic. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it always shall be until we stand beyond the river and we see the number of the righteous covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And of course, um, the most evident picture of this is Christ standing on the cross. He's carrying the cross outside Jerusalem, 
He's been abandoned by his disciples. He's been abandoned by his people. He's been abandoned by the civil authorities, and he stands alone as the, the sin offering facing the holy God of, of heaven. And so, that's, that's important, young people, as, as you might look at this world and you, you think to yourself, you know, um, as you go, maybe go to college especially and you hear your professors ridiculing the Christian faith, and you see many of your friends living wicked lives, and you think, is it possible they could all be right? Or is it possible they're all wrong and you know, the small band of brothers at Christ Covenant Church is correct? Passages like this tell you, yes, it is possible. The world is wrong. They're lost in the darkness. And though they are many, there is more with us than with them. With them is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God who will fight with us. So don't let the rise of the nuns frighten you. Don't let God's plummeting approval rates out in the world scare you either. Um, you've got to decide and decide right now, are you going to stand with the many or are you going to stand with God? You need to reconcile yourself now that many of your friends in the world are going to hell. Even in the church, Jesus says, many will say, Lord, Lord. That's a, that's a frightening word. Many will say, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many wonders in your name? Many of the best preachers, many of the best miracle workers, um, and the last day will say, Lord, Lord, do we, what, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Narrow is the way in the world and in the church. Many are going the wrong way. Many are following Christ for the wrong reasons. Many have think they take Christ as Savior, but they've not taken Him as their Lord. And you can't cut Christ in half like Solomon's baby. You take a whole Christ, a Savior and Lord. And we must resolve this day um, the vast majority of people um, in the world, and many in the church, Catholic, the broad church, are on the broad road that leads to destruction. They're going to hell. The question is, do you want to join them? I want you to live and take God seriously. We need to live and take worship seriously. We need to live and take sin seriously, because we'll see in this passage, God Himself does. As Jesus said in the shortest sermon, remember Lot's wife. So, the real God doesn't care about the odds, the one against the many. Then secondly, the real God doesn't care about obstacles. obstacles. As William still says, the real God is an athletic God. He loves to create obstacles for Himself to get over. And it's amazing to see Elijah set up obstacle after obstacle for God to overcome. As we've said before, he picks Mount Carmel. He could have gone to Jerusalem or even Bethel, which was now a pagan shrine, but it was at least a place where God met Jacob. He could have picked a hundred different sites, but he picks Mount Carmel 
on the mountain range um, for high over the valley of Jezreel, near the Mediterranean, a lush green mountain, a fertile place that was a picture of, of Baal's fertility, his power to produce um, a, a fecund growth among the trees and the grass on that lush mountain. And he was the god of the storm. And so, as you might say, he seeds home court advantage to Baal. The next obstacle that Elijah creates is he, he, the actual test plays to Baal's supposed strengths. But the test plays to Baal's strengths. He could have said, whichever God turns the, the brook Kishon red to blood, which Elijah will do later in the story, but by a more natural method. But whatever God turns the river Kishon into blood, that's the real God. And the prophet of Baal would have said, foul, not fair. That's one of Yahweh's strengths. Yahweh's done that. He turned the, he turned the Nile to blood in the days of, of Moses. He can do that. No, um, our God's the storm God. So Elijah says, okay, <laughs> your God's the God of the lightning. Your God's the God of the thunder. The God who answers by lightning or fire from heaven, let him be God. And so the prophets of Baal would have thought, that's a good idea. Then thirdly, next obstacle, he gives the prophets of Baal first crack of the whip. It is, if you like, a sudden death contest. He doesn't, have, he doesn't let Yahweh fight side by side with the prophets of Baal. Yes, prophets of Baal have first go. And he lets them go all day. And that's quite stressful, right? I mean, you think, well, Elijah knows about the real God. He's not going to be stressed out. But you know about the real God. And when, when you have people at work who are working against you, you get pretty stressed out about them because they're human beings and they're working against you, maybe trying to get you fired or undermine you or something. And you get stressed about it. But they're only human beings. But so are the prophets of Baal. And it would have only taken one prophet of Baal with a strategically placed, you know, magnifying glass. Remember, uh, things are dry. It hasn't rained in three years. The wood is dry as tinder. And just have that kind of magnifying glass there. They're all dancing and prancing around. Or I'm sure they had their magic arts, a bit of gunpowder, you know, thrown amongst the uh, a trail of gunpowder, maybe reaching out. And, and again, the guy over to the side lights it, and poof, it's, you know, we're off to the races, and, and, and Yahweh and Elijah's in trouble. But Elijah's quite calm. He, he lets them have first crack. He lets them try all day long. He also, he doesn't even say to them, you know, okay, I'm one prophet. It's not fair. I can't give you the power of combined intercession. I mean, 450 guys prophesying is quite a number, Right. He lets them all, he doesn't just say, you pick your best prophet, I pick mine, David and Goliath. He lets them all go. And then, more than that, he mocks them. That's pretty stressful. I remember a friend of mine once was at a bowling alley, and um, there was a thunderstorm overhead, and, and this um, profane man in the bowling alley said, Oh, the Almighty's playing bowls up in heaven. And my friend said to him, Sir, I dare you, go outside and point your fist at heaven and say that outside where the lightning can get to you. And 
the pagan declined. It's one thing saying, oh, God's playing, you know, to mock God, playing bowling in heaven with thunder when you're in safe under a, a bowling alley. It's quite another to walk outside and raise your fist to the heavens where the lightning can get you. And Elijah starts mocking Baal. If there's any doubt that Baal exists, and of course Elijah knows he doesn't exist, but if there's any doubt, you wouldn't want to mock him into action. But Elijah's totally calm. He knows who the real God is. There's no stress and no worry. Mocks him. Maybe your God's at the restroom. Um, maybe he's on a journey, because their gods did those kind of things. They were just busy souped-up versions of the real God. Or, sorry, souped-up versions of human beings. Ralph Davis, in his commentary, is helpful in this. He says, Christians are apt to feel detached from this text. We will protest that we don't carry on with all that pagan hullabaloo. We don't gash ourselves. We aren't pagan blockheads. I will grant you, he said, that's true. But we can be much more refined in our idolatry. Please note, however, the assumption on which the Baal prophets operate. God will begin to do things if only we get a flurry of passionate religious activity going. Do we not have our own brand of evangelical Baalism? Christians and churches in the West seem to believe that God will surely work if only we, if only we spend longer in personal devotions and more time in private prayer, belong to a home Bible study group or form a peer accountability group, get more people involved in our visitation evangelism program, attend weekend marriage enrichment seminars or hold a singles retreat, start neighborhood clubs for kids or early morning men's prayer breakfast or provide mother's mornings out or hold more missions conferences and increased faith promise giving and so forth and so on, all these kind of things. He says all this Christian busyness can be very exhausting, just as exhausting as Baal worship, minus the gashes. Most of these are not illegitimate activities. I'm not opposing more time spent in Bible study or prayer or going on mission trips. But might an illegitimate rationale drive them? Are these means of grace or gimmicks designed to manipulate, impress, or stir up God? You may not be a prophet of God, a prophet of Baal, sorry, but you may think like one. You may think like one. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 6? Remember, turn there a second with me. He's talking about prayer. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That's convicting. We sometimes think we need to earn an audience with God by our the zeal of our intercession, or the complexity of our prayers. 
but Jesus has done all the earning that needs to be done to get you access to God. Now, that doesn't mean you should pray mindlessly, you should pray mindlessly or thoughtlessly. Prayer is a difficult business. It's probably the most difficult business we ever engage in. God doesn't need help listening, but we need help praying. And so, it can be useful to memorize Scripture. It can be useful to bring the promises of God, not because God needs reminding of the promises, but because we do, and because it's by as we listen to the Word of God that our hearts are encouraged and our, our prayers are stirred up, and we find ourselves able to pray and to lay hold of God. Um, but so often we can think that we need to gain a hearing with God by our zeal, by our earnestness, and um, that is not true. Having said that, I'm also reminded of the, the, the student once who never read, and John Angel James was talking to him about that, and the student said, God has no need of my learning. John Angel James says, this is true, but he's still less need of your ignorance. And so, there's always a balance here in this regard but we need to beware that thought that God needs stirred up to listen to us, or that somehow our words or our zeal or our activity grabs the attention of God. Nothing could be uh, further from the truth. And then the last obstacle, of course, if that were all not enough, Elijah makes things hard for God. He pours, perhaps, up to 45 gallons of water over this sacrifice, soaking the wood and soaking the bull. Obstacles. God is an athletic God. And His prayer, what a contrast. As we said, I think, last week, if you've listened to the Mendelssohn Oratorio, one of my favorite oratorios, um, it's just beautiful. But the prophets of Baal get more and more chaotic. Baal, we cry to thee, and so forth. And then it stops, and the bass baritone Elijah steps forward. O Lord God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that thou art God, and I am thy servant. It's just glorious. And the, and the fire of heaven falls. Such, such simplicity as... Uh, the prophet of Baal, or the prophet Elijah prays. And the connection here is not us and Elijah. Christ is the new Elijah, of course. And we come to Yahweh through him, and he always lives to pray for us. And so the fire shall always fall, never because of you, never even because of the way you pray or how often you pray, although there's some importance there, but, but it never grabs God's attention in that sense. It's because of Jesus alone that God hears us, because He always hears when Jesus prays, and He always lives, Jesus does, to pray for you, Christian. So, the real God doesn't care about odds. He doesn't care about obstacles. I'm reminded of Luther um, in the Reformation. You remember when God brought Re Reformation to Wittenberg it came not through the force of Luther's personality, but simply through the force of God's Word. I simply taught, he said, and preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such 
losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. And you remember how some of Luther's disciples in the iconoclastic controversy, when they're going around and smashing the Catholic idolatry, the idols, the this pictures of saints and the crucifixes and Jesus and stuff, um, Luther rebuked them and said, no, don't smash the idols. Preach the Word and let the people smash their own statues. And that's just a lesson for us, lesson for me in ministry. Too often it's easy uh, when you're a forceful personality to kind of put your thumb on the scale or try and push things through. But we need to let the Lord do His work and pray and, and let the Word do the work. And not, God doesn't need our anger, our zeal, our frustration. He's quite capable of ensuring that His work is done in His time, in His way, and for His glory. And that's a lesson to us all. Lastly, the real God does care about truth and life, or as Jim would say, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? Ideas have consequences. Elijah seems to sense that when he uh, does the God contest at the start. He says, if Yahweh is God, follow Him. But if the Lord is God, follow Him. How long will you go limping between two opinions? Again, Davis is helpful. Elijah's formulation assumes that theology leads to discipleship. Commitments have consequences. Elijah will not allow you to attend a God contest simply so that you can conclude, oh, well, now we know that Yahweh is the real God. What movie do you want to see this evening? No, Elijah, the Bible, Yahweh Himself will not allow you the comfort of such detachment. If Yahweh is God, follow Him. The existence of the real God is not a detached, but is a demanding matter. God is not an idea with which you play. He is a king to whom you submit. Or as Jesus says, even more bluntly, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do the things that I say? Where in your life, where in my life are you living as if Yahweh, as if Jesus was not the real Lord. What lies are you, are you believing when you choose deliberately to sin, when you allow your heart to get all het up with anxiety and fear, when you look at your neighbor and his promotion and his pay rise and, and his house and his car, and his wife, and you start getting discontent with the things God has given you. Um, how easy it is for our theology to get mixed up. We know Yahweh is the real God up here, but in our heart, in our hands, we very often go a different way. It's one thing to know something up here. It's entirely another to really believe it down here. It's the it's the longest distance in all the world, they say, between your head and your heart. If Yahweh is God, follow Him. 
If Baal is God, follow him. How long will you limp between two opinions? And think about that. Go back tonight and get down and ask yourself, Lord, what things in my life would really change if I really believed you were God? If the idea, the ideas of orthodoxy really got into my soul. Like, if you really believed that when the Word of God is preached, the voice of Christ is heard, how would that affect you on Sunday evenings? Like, if, if, if Jesus was the preacher here, and not me or even Kyle, how many of our people would come back Sunday evening? But that's precisely the point. Christ is the preacher here. Whether Kyle's preaching, I'm preaching, Derek Thomas is preaching, Ralph Davis is preaching, whoever's preaching, when the Word of God is preached in this pulpit, Christ is heard. And yet how easy it is to be blasé about worship and blasé about the things of God and just to think, well, I've got something better to do. And, and, and that way, and a thousand other ways, our, our ideas aren't nearly consequential in our lives. Or actually, more better, all men really do live out their real theology. Not what they think they believe. Not what they know they ought to believe, but what they really do believe. If Yahweh is God, follow Him. And if pornography is God, follow it. If money is God, follow that. If the majority in school are God, and their frown is the omnipotent, almighty God that bends your will this way or that, then follow them. But if Yahweh is God, follow Yahweh. Think about that. Go back on your knees and ask God, Lord, show me in my life where are the areas where I'm compromising what I know is true because I'm allowing another God, another theology to control me, to consume me the way only you should. He cares about the oblation of our sins. Isn't it interesting? The fire falls, the text says, at the time of the oblation, probably the evening sacrifice. What a contrast with Baal. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention because, of course, there was no one there. But with Elijah, the fire fell. And after the fire came the rain. It's interesting that um, 
That's why the God contest had to come first, because if, if there'd been no God contest and God said it's going to rain again, the prophet of Baal said, oh, no, that wasn't Yahweh, that was Baal. But with, ba- with, with Baal being humiliated the way he was, taken off the stage as a complete non-actor, the stage is free for God to send rain and for everyone from small to great to know who sent the rain and where it came from. And lastly, we see under the God does care about truth and life, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, we see that God cares about the purity of His worship. 450 prophets lie dead in the brook Kidron. 450. Elijah killed them. One of the elders asked last week, how do you think he did that? I said, one by one and with a sword. It was a bloody business. Why? Well, because sin matters. Because worship matters. And because God matters. It's a serious business, worship and sin and God, which is why Jesus says, if you're right, hand sins, or your right eye. Pluck it out, cut it off. Better to go to heaven maimed, metaphorically speaking, than to go to hell whole. Now, Christ does, doesn't mean literally cut off your arm and your eye, because you could still lust with your eye and your arm gone, of course, and your other eye and your other hand gone. But he does mean, whatever it takes, deal seriously with sin. Well, Jesus said this evening in our text, Luke 13, repent or you will all likewise perish. Are there areas in your life where you're delaying repentance from known sin? Known, we all sin every day. But there are, as Kyle prayed this morning in his prayer of confession, there are high-handed sins that we sin at times where we sin with a high hand, with a, a wicked, rebellious spirit, where we know God is saying no, but our heart is saying, oh, yes. And the same God who says, repent, or you will all likewise perish. Sorry. The same God who says, where sin abounds, grace is much more abounded. That is true. But the one who is the truth also said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And you've got to hold both those truths in tension. Because truth and error, true worship and idolatry, obedience and disobedience is a serious business when it comes to knowing and serving the God of Elijah, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the one who loved us so much he sent his own Son 
to the cross, that he might send sinners like you and me to heaven. And the real question in the light of the New Testament is not, why are you playing with sins that might kill you? That's part of it. But the real question is, why are you playing with sins that did kill Jesus? Does my son's obedience and blood that hides all of your transgressions from view, is it a cheap thing for thee to ask Christ to sprinkle thee afresh with his blood? It's a cheap thing for which to ask. It cost you nothing, but it cost my son everything to offer you the mercy that is so freely available. May that blood from the riven side that flows be of sin its double cure, cleansing you not just of its sin's guilt, but also its power, and giving you the strength to heed the voice of Elijah, if Yahweh is God, follow him. Or as Christ said to the woman caught in adultery, go, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, its truth, its power. We pray this evening that you would speak to us from it and sanctify us through it and give us all from pulpit to pew reason to examine our hearts and see where are the areas, O oh God, where we are footless and fancied free and, and lack self-control, even in apparently trivial things like at the dinner table and all the way through, O oh God, to serious, what the world would say are much more serious sins. But, Lord, grant us grace to be serious with sin because we're serious with the gospel and because we want to be serious with God. In Jesus' name, amen.